As we turn our attention to Psalm 3, if you'll turn there, I want you to notice how the psalmist begins. As I mentioned regarding Psalm 51 in our scripture reading, the psalm actually begins with the superscription, the title of the psalm, if you will, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And as I mentioned, in the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, that appears as verse 1, which leads me to believe that it is that which is so very, very important and should be included, of course, in our Bibles as inspired by the Lord to give us, in a sense, a preview of coming attractions. This is Psalm 3, uh, David's son Absalom, who was, along with David's wife, a part of the family of King David. David's wife, Maacah, had a child, Absalom, which, by the way, means a father is or father of peace. Now, the word shalom, you can see in that particular name, which means wholeness or peace. That's the greeting that uh, Hebrews give to each other, Israelis, shalom. Uh, It means wholeness, peace. It's it's really a, a wish kind of prayer for the blessing of the person that you come in contact with. And with that in mind, I think it would be good for us, because of that superscription that is listed there about the background of Psalm 3, I want to open our minds to what David is meaning when he pens Psalm 3, this song to the Lord. So I'd like for you to go back to 2 Samuel to get the background. And if you go to 2 Samuel, maybe we'll start around chapter 11. And I'll do my best to try to give you a sense, uh, an overview briefly of some of the things that David is going to allude to here in Psalm 3. For instance, in chapter 11, uh, if you've read your Bible in Sunday school as a little one, or you've read your Bible through in a year, and you read through the chronicle of the history of Israel, you find a very dark period, even with King David. There are a lot of dark periods, of course, in Israel's history, but this is actually a dark time for King David himself. Because in chapter 11, uh, this is the accounting of the sin of David with Bathsheba. And this, of course, was not only the sin of adultery with David, but it was also against Uriah the Hittite, who was the husband of Bathsheba. And it also included, as you know, even the orchestration by David of the murdering of Uriah so that he could take Bathsheba to be his own. Now, of course, it's true that David had other wives and concubines, uh, as was uh, so very common among kings in the ancient Near East. But in this particular story, and the reason why the history writer gives it to us, is that he wants to show us, of course, that David is a man of clay feet. He, yes, was a man after God's own heart. And I read you Psalm 51 to where he confessed his transgression against the Lord, and he sought the Lord's forgiveness, and he wanted the Lord's blessing. But he was also a human being who was very, very sinful. And even though he confessed to the Lord, there were great consequences to his sin. In fact, even in chapter 12, you remember that the prophet Nathan gave David a a story, as it were. And he asked David, in a sense, what should be done in this story. And of course, if you've read the first part of chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 6, you know that David was incensed by the story that he heard. And he basically said, uh, this man ought to be dealt with uh, very angrily and uh, very swiftly. And of course, what David was doing was attempting to give that story so that David would understand, I actually am that man. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. You remember 
that David uh, was very, very, um, uh, he, he was very familiar with the idea of running for his life. He ran for his life at the hands of King Saul who wanted to put him to death because David was going to be anointed or so Saul assumed. And so he did everything in his power to try to find David and put him to death. So he knows very familiarly what it means to run. And yet with this sin with Bathsheba and even her conception of a child who of course we know in chapter 12 and beyond that the child dies. And then of course he and Bathsheba Uh, conceive again and Solomon is the result but God was very displeased with David and he says I anointed you according to 2 Samuel 12 7 I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little I would add to you as much more why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him, that is Uriah the Hittite, with the sword of the Ammonites. This is not a, it's not a pretty picture, is it? And that's just the beginning. We know, because the narrative continues, these sad words. Verse 10, of 2 Samuel 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Bloodshed. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You're going to have bloodshed the rest of your days, David. Of course, we know He was not allowed by God to build the temple. Only Solomon was going to be in charge of doing that because he was a man of blood, of bloodshed. And his family may be likened in many ways to Eli, the priest of old, who did not discipline his sons and paid the ultimate price for it. And this is David paying the ultimate price for the consequences of his sin. But here's the difference. Notice what David does immediately in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Those would, I'm sure, have been incredibly encouraging words for David. Because he could have died and perhaps should have died being an adulterer and being a murderer. Nathan says, Nevertheless, because this deed you have because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And we know that. And not only that, but as you continue to progress through this narrative, you have the evil sin of David's eldest son, Amnon, according to chapter 13, raping, that is incestually raping, his half-sister Tamar. And then you have Tamar's, uh, Tamar's brother Absalom, who is so incensed about what has happened to his sister that he waits. In fact, he waits two full years, according to verse 23 of chapter 13 to get his revenge upon Amnon and he does and Amnon is killed and Absalom is the murderer and he flees according to verse 34 of chapter 13 and he goes away so that maybe the the volatility of the moment might pass and according to chapter 14 and on into chapter 15 
at the end of four years, according to chapter 15, verse 7, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I vowed to the Lord in Hebron. He wanted to be, in a sense, or at least what appears on the surface of the narrative, to be right with his father, David. To, in a sense, say, I want to confess, I want to be right with you, I want to have a relationship, but it's all a ruse. It's all a ruse. Because there's a conspiracy afoot, and the conspiracy is for Absalom to take over the throne and to kill his own father, King David. I mean, it's a sordid, tawdry tale, isn't it? If you've ever read it, you and I are gripped by the narrative, not just of the sin and all of the bald details, but just the the issue of the conflict and the fighting and the hatred, even between members of the same family. Rape, incest, murder, vengeance, jealousy, rage, vengeance. This is a a terrible story. And yet, out of this story, God brings good. It's a Romans 8.28, isn't it? And what God does is amazing, especially, my friends, in the heart of of David himself. Remember he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And we read in Psalm 51 that he confessed his transgressions to the Lord. Just as Nathan was saying, you are the man. He understood it. He confessed to the Lord. He sought forgiveness. And now with that, just as a brief background, go back to Psalm 3. And now you know why the superscription says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Or at least you know some of it. The narrative goes on to give us the story of Absalom's conspiracy and then David having to flee quickly out of the palace, out of Jerusalem, so that he and his followers themselves would not be slain by Absalom his own son. And out of all of that intrigue and death threats and desertion and a fleeing and tears and sorrow and anguish of soul that your own son is about to sell you out and would slit your throat if he could, David says this in Psalm 3, O Lord, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Selah is probably lost to us as to its exact meaning. It might have been a, a musical or liturgical term. And it might have even been, as some suggest, a kind of a pause in the midst of the song so that people might, in fact, tame, take time to think about what they're singing. to to listen to the words, to understand the narrative as the song unfolds. And I think for you and for me, what I see out of Psalm 3 here is a very, very similar application. Maybe not those who are going to come and uh, do us in by the sword, but certainly if you flattened it out and asked this question, what about crises in your life? 
What about adversaries? What about those who do unkind things to you? Say unkind things to you? You've gone through a broken and shattered relationship. Maybe even with a good friend. Maybe even a family member. What do you do when it seems like your whole world is crashing down on top of you? It's undoubtedly not the case with you, as I said, as it was with King David in Second Samuel, that you're being pursued in order to face death by the sword. You and I have nevertheless, I'm sure though, experienced and are possibly experiencing right now, I don't know, the heartache of those who hate you, who are displeased with you, and who truly want you to suffer. At least, even if you're not suffering at the hands of someone who who literally hates you, you might still be experiencing those who feel that you're their enemy, or they don't want you to prosper. They don't want you to be blessed. Maybe it's their misunderstanding, but it also may may be because they truly have been hurt by you, or you have been hurt by them. And what they're doing against you, or maybe even actually beyond what they might be doing, certainly, especially by what they might be saying. It might be that in our day, the thing that hurts the most is not what somebody does particularly, but what someone says. Gossip. Maybe sending out rumors about you. Maybe casting aspersions on your character. Well, this was certainly true of what David was experiencing at the hand of his own son. Amnon is dead, the eldest. Absalom wants to put a sword through David. And in 2 Samuel 14.33, Absalom feigned allegiance to his father David. He went to him and he bowed himself down on the face of the ground before the king. And then David turned around and kissed his son. I suppose we could call that the Judas kiss, right? Because Absalom has no intention of truly reconciling with his dad. None none whatsoever. In fact, he might even be looked upon as an insurrectionist, maybe even like those in Psalm 2. Do you remember Psalm 2, verse 1? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Absalom was going to people and he was saying things like this. You know, if you have disputes among each other, I can help you decide. I can adjudicate on your behalf. Where's King David? He's not around to be able to settle disputes uh, between the people of Israel who have ought against one another. I can help you. I'll judge between the peoples. David's nowhere around. That was part of that, that insurrection, part of the conspiracy. In chapter 15, Absalom deceived fellow Israelites into thinking that the king didn't have time to judge between various disputes. Even verse 6 of chapter 15 says, Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He vied for their affections because he knew what he was about to do. A little later in verses 13 and 14, And a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. In other words, David, you're losing them. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, and he knew, he knew his time was virtually up. And he says this, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So that's the scene, my friends. David is having to flee. And you and I are saying to each other, but wait a minute, he's the king. Where's the army? Where's the secret service? Where's the protection? 
Well, Absalom had done very well. He'd gone in and through, and he'd cast doubts on David's leadership. He was able to sway so many of these Israelites to his favor. It didn't hurt that he was the son of the king. It didn't hurt that he might have put suggestions in the minds of those Israelites, including the army and the secret service, that one day I'm going to be king. You ought to pay me allegiance now. I'll pay you back later. Quid pro quo. This for that. You do this for me now, I'll do that for you then. This is, this is how it always happens. And what was David's response according to Psalm 3? Here's the first outline point. Here it is. It's real complex. Pray to God. Pray to God. Yes, that's the answer. Pray to God. Even back in chapter 15 of 2 Samuel in verses 30 and 31, the text says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, the very steps that Jesus himself did when he ascended up to the Mount of Olives. And David, the lesser son, he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Now, is that any way for a king to ascend up to the Mount of Olives? He owns the hill. He's the king of the hill. And yet, he's weeping as he goes. He's got his head covered so that he won't be noticed. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Isn't this sad? And it was told David, Ahithophel, his seer, his prophet, his Otherwise, erstwhile friend, Ahithophel, is among the conspirators with Absalom. Boy, what a sellout. What a turncoat. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's a prayer. And he prays right here in Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2. O Lord. And I want you to notice three times, three times the word many is mentioned. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? They're multitudinous. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I mean, when you're under a crisis... When you're under significant adversity and when people either misunderstand you or they don't like you or they're about your destruction in some way, either by their doing or by their talking, whatever the case is in an estranged relationship or relationships, and David knew it, he knew it for sure, he'd had all of that experience of fleeing and deserting in the midst of Saul's rage, and now he's coming under the rage of his own son, and he says, Lord, how many are my foes? All of these mighty men are rising up against me, and so many people are saying of my own soul, there's no deliverance for you. You can call on God if you want. Nothing's going to happen. Because your damaged goods, David... You're a man of blood. You've killed many, many people, not simply in battle, but you also killed Uriah the Hittite in order to have his wife. And you know what God did to you, David? Your baby died. You see, God's left you. God's abandoned you. He's deserted you. There's no deliverance for you in God. And then that little word, largely lost to us, Selah. Pause. Reflect. And I suspect it's intended for us to do the same thing. What do you do when the crisis comes? How do you respond? What do you do? Do you, do you go to a counselor? Do you want to hear a word from another human being? I mean, it's not all that bad, it's just not the best. Here's the best. Here's the number one thing to do in adversity, in crisis. Pray to God. Pray to God. Go to God. Pour out your heart to God. I mean, can you imagine David? 
hearing the story from Nathan and he gets incensed at the mistreatment, the ill treatment of another. And then Nathan says, you're the man. And then this incredibly difficult prophecy to hear that you're going to have bloodshed, you're going to have chaos in your own house, you can't build the temple, now you have your own son involved in an insurrection against you, and if he finds you, he's going to, he's going to through the sword, take your life? I mean, folks, the only thing you can do, in fact, the thing you must do, is pray to God. Pray to God. Ask God for help. I mean, this is this is a sad story. In fact, the prophecy that was given by Nathan from the Lord, in which David was told, and there's going to be a neighbor of yours who's going to take the concubines that you've left behind, who have been giving attendance to the palace. And he's going to set up on the roof for all Israel to see a tent. And everybody in Israel knows very well what's going on in there. And he's going to have his way with your ladies. The ultimate indignity. What do you say? Well, he said what he said in Psalm 51, didn't he? Against you, God, and you alone, I did this evil in your sight. I mean, look, there are a lot of biblical characters who sinned against the Lord and they never sought his forgiveness. Even this Ahithophel, this seer, this prophet, gives his allegiance away from David and to this erstwhile king, Absalom, and then later, when he's caught... In his own prophecy, he went out and hung himself. He never asked for forgiveness. And here's David. He said, Lord, I was born in sin. I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that to you. Purge me. Cleanse me. Clean up the filth of my life. That's his prayer. That's his prayer to God. That's what we have to do. We've got to pray especially in a time of great adversity, pray. Number one on the list, pray to God. Here's the second thing, according to verse 3, believe on God. Believe on God. Pray to God. And secondly, believe on God. Look at verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Now, this is a man under great duress, to be sure. But he's thinking clearly. And here's what he's thinking. Not simply or only or merely about himself, but he's also focusing his attention, his thoughts, upon the person, the character, the attributes of God. Now, that's not easy. How many times in that crisis of your life? Have you been able to clear away the cobwebs of your mind and all of your own circumstances and the horizontal level to be able to go vertical and say, God, I have to get my mind on you. I have to focus on who you are, not just on my circumstances. I mean, it's never going to be that someone never thinks about their own circumstances. We're human beings. We're going to be thinking about our own circumstances. If we only do that, we're in big trouble. We have to work toward making sure that on a vertical level, we see God for who he is. And what does David say about his God? Notice what he says. You are a shield around me. You know what he's saying by that? You're my protector. You're my protector. My own son is after me, Lord. Will you not protect me? Please do so. And then he says, You are my glory. Now, it could be two different things. It could be that he's saying, 
you, God, and your person and your work and your character and your attributes are my glory. Or he's saying, Lord, you're the, one, you're the only one who can restore my glory. You're the only one who can reseat me in Jerusalem. You're the only one who can give me the kingdom back from my wicked son Absalom. Either way, God's not only your protector, but he's your provider. He's your provider. Get vertical. It's hard to get away from a full and complete focus on the horizontal. You, your circumstances, what they did to me, what they said to me, the crisis in my life, the loss of a loved one, cancer in my body, whatever it is, it's hard to get vertical. But if you can get vertical, pray to God and believe on Him. He is my protector. He is my provider. And then he says this, beautiful words, poetic, the lifter of my head. You're my power. You're my power. I'm, I'm powerless without you, God. And what he does is he gives three character attributes about God because he is challenging us through his own life and through his own circumstances to entrust his entire soul to the Lord. That's why I say it's believe on God. It's not simply believing in God and believing in the fact that God can do something. It's that you are entrusting your entire soul to the Lord. You're, as it were, laying down the soul of your life completely and only on the promises of God. Do you have some directionlessness in your life? I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what job I'm going to have. I don't want know what my future is. I want to be married. I want to have a family. I'm single. Or I'm married and I'm not happy. Or I'm married and I'm happy with my spouse, but I'm not happy with my kids. Or I have a wayward child. Or I have a dead-end job. Or I have somebody who I'm convinced is out to get me. What do I do? Go vertical. Even though you're never lost on the horizontal, you're in the circumstances, and you may not get out of those circumstances, but go vertical and say to the Lord, I know who you are in your character. You are a protector, you are a provider, and you are my very power. And I entrust my soul completely on you. Believe on God. And thirdly, not simply pray to God and believe on God, but according to verse 4, seek answers from God. Seek answers from God. You see, you're still in this vertical position. You're still praying to God. You're believing on His character, His attributes. You want His favor. You want Him to bless you. And so, what does David do? Verse 4, when Absalom is chasing after him, he seeks answers from God. What does he do? Verse 4, I cried aloud to whom? To the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He answered me from the holiness of his hill. Now, if you think about that, it's not funny, but there's great irony here. Because David's not per currently on the holy hill. He just had to flee the holy hill. Jerusalem. The, the abode of God, as it were. And he's the king. But he had to flee because his son is after him. And his son was able to gather thousands of people against him. And so he had to flee. He was weeping. The people who were following David were weeping. He had to cover his head. And there was even in the narrative of 2 Samuel, a man who came along and started taunting David. You man of blood, get out of here. And there was one with David who said, hey, let me ring him through. And David said, no. What he said is from the Lord. It's true. And I need to seek my answers from God. And how does he do it? Cries out to the Lord. In fact, the tense of the Hebrew text and the context would suggest this. I continually cried out to the Lord. 
One translation even has it this way. With my voice to Yahweh, I kept crying. I kept crying. And there in David's heart, knowing that even though he'd sinned against the Lord and he helped bring on some of these consequences, his sin with Bathsheba, his murdering of Uriah, he sought the Lord's forgiveness. And he'd repented of his sins. And that's what you and I need to do. Maybe some of the trouble that we have on that horizontal level is because we have our own self-inflicted wounds. Maybe our attitudes against those who are against us are not too far off from their attitudes about us. Maybe sometimes we're our own worst enemy. And while we're thinking about all the devastating things they've done against us, we could think of a few things for which we would want to devastate them. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What does David do? He seeks answers from God. I mean, he not only prays to God, and he not only believes on God, his whole soul is laid out before the Lord, but he seeks answers from God himself. And what does God say? He answered me from his holy hill. He gave me a word. We don't know exactly what word this was. Was it a divine revelation? Was it through someone else? What was it? We don't know. But what we know is David was restored. He was restored. Absalom's insurrection did not come to fruition. God answered. He answered. But before... David saw the answer. He's still running. He's still weeping. He's still got his head covered. He's, he's still in caves, which I'm sure he thought that that was going to be long, long ago, the cave experience in Saul, and it would be gone forever. But no, here he is again. And yet, he's seeking answers from God. He's praying to God, and he's entrusting his whole soul to God. And look what he does next. Number four, rest in God. Rest in God. Pray to God. Believe on God. Seek answers from God. And now rest in God. Look at verses 5 and 6. This is, this is some more irony. I lay down and slept. Now, is that, is that your first reaction? I mean, they're, they're after you, David. You could actually be laying down with your, with your pillow a rock, and somebody could come up behind you and put the sword through your heart how can you sleep at a time like this I lay down and slept David had this this rest in the character of God he didn't just say well I believe God's my protector and I believe God will be my provider and I believe God will be my power amen he actually followed through by literally resting You know, some of us, with all the things that we think that are on our hearts, the trouble we're in, the devastation, the crisis, the adversity, the trial, the test, you know, part of a good answer to that dilemma? Go to bed. Take a long nap. Rest. And while you're doing that quite literally, spiritually speaking, rest in God. Rest in God. I mean, David is so confident that the Lord will be all that he needs. He lies down and sleeps. I mean, here he is in the midst of potentially being captured and killed, yet he's so confident about the Lord's sovereign will and purpose for his life as the king of Israel. He says, I laid down and I slept, and when I awoke, the Lord sustained me. The Lord was true to his word. I mean, David knew all the way back in 2 Samuel 7, 14, that he was going to have an everlasting kingdom. And David obviously knew he wasn't going to live eternally. He knew he was going to die, but he knew his kingdom was secure. And he believed God, and he trusted God, and he rested in God, who sustains those who trust in him, and who by faith do not fear thousands of people who have taken their stand against him. That's what he says. I lay down, I slept, I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And without naming them, who are they? 
Absalom, of course. And all of his band of vengeance brothers. And how does David know it? Because God's seen him do it before. And he's going to see him do it again. And he's going to trust God because he's resting in God. I mean, he's praying to God. He's believing on God. He's seeking answers from God. And he's resting in God. And number five, proclaim your God. Proclaim your God. That's what you have to do. I mean, after the praying and the believing and the seeking and the resting, and you're all going to do those things while you're doing this, proclaiming your God. And that's what David does. Look at verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord. Which is so interesting to me because he says, Arise, O Lord, in verse 7, just as he had said in verse 1, many are rising against me. Well, for all of you who are rising against me, guess what? God has arisen to meet you. And he'll take up my cause. Arise, O Lord. And then this word that is mentioned three times here, save me, deliver me, deliver me from my enemies. You know, you and I read sometimes these psalms, and we read these accounts, and we say, you know, I can't relate to that. I mean, nobody's got a sword. Nobody's got a gun. Nobody's put a gun to my head and said, if you quote a verse out of the Quran, you will live. If you can't, you will die. No one's doing that. You and I aren't experiencing that. I can't relate to this. Oh, yes, we can. Arise, O God. Save me. Save me spiritually. And also, Lord, deliver me from the adversities of my life. Deliver my friend. Deliver the person that I have a heart for that needs to know the Lord. Deliver me out of this challenge. Lord, help me financially. Help me with this this character issue, this flaw in my life, this besetting sin. Lord, help me. Save me. Deliver me. Oh, my God. And in David's case, it's quite literal. They're coming after him. They've got swords. They've got ammunition. And he says, For you, God, strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And I know some people say, Oh, that sounds so vicious. You know, it wouldn't if they were literally after you. If they were after you and you knew you couldn't defend yourself or that you were powerless in your own might to do it, who would you be calling upon? The powerful one of the universe. God, do it. Help me. Save me. Deliver me. I don't want to die. And then these great words mentioned a couple of other times in the Old Testament. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. They say, according to verse 2, there is no salvation for him in God. And David says, not so. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Deliverance. God's going to deliver me. And you know what? Even if he doesn't deliver my physical life and it's my time to die, I'll be dwelling with him forever. You know, the worst thing of all is for you to be an Ahithophel, for you to be an Absalom. For, for you to be that kind of person and you know that the sword is about to be thrust through you and you haven't sought forgiveness and you don't have eternal life with God and you will not dwell with Him forever and your spiritual life and your physical life, you will be judged. Not David. Here's in essence what he says. Arise, O Lord, and I know you have and I know you will. That's the sense of the verbs. Save me, O my God, and I know you have, and I know you will. And here's how you will do it. For you will surely strike all my enemies on the cheek, and the teeth of the wicked will surely break. This is not simply a prayer. This is a proclamation. He's proclaiming his God. And David, even as that little boy, you remember him, with big Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? And David put his head, his foot on Goliath's head. He believed God. He trusted God. He knew God was his protector and his provider and his power. He knew that. So, for you, for me, Psalm 3, boy, does it apply. Pray to God. Believe on God. 
Seek answers from God. Rest in God. And proclaim your God's salvation. You know, I told you that I wanted to uh, sort of nudge us to come back on Sunday nights for the Psalms. A Jewish unbeliever who didn't know Christ found out how much to love the Psalms. And with this, I close. A lone, bare light bulb, plain, unadorned concrete walls and floor, a cement cot, a pot for one's waist. Life for a dissident Jew in the former Soviet Union was often a barren experience, but especially so for one in the Lorvotovo or Kistopol prisons. But even this was home compared to the punishment cell used for disciplinary purposes. Anatoly spent plenty of time in both during his nine years of incarceration. His crime? He cared about human rights enough to speak up. His greatest offense? He wanted to emigrate from the land of his birth, the Soviet Union, to the land of his people, Israel. Anatoly had not been a particularly religious Jew. He had known and cared little for the history of his people. He did not know the God of his fathers. What he did begin to see was that life under the Soviet regime was not what it should be or could be, and he set himself on a crusade to find that life. During his nine years of imprisonment, Anatoly Sharansky spent 403 days in punishment cells and more than 200 on hunger strikes. Months on end of countless repeated interrogations and then the contrasting stretches of extreme isolation took their toll on body, mind, and spirit. The experience of a punishment cell began with the humiliation of a strip search with thin, worn clothing offered to replace the warmer clothing that had been confiscated The offender was led to the basement where a bare cement room measuring two meters by one and a half awaited him. The walls were damp. The plaster flaked and peeled from the moisture. There was no cot, only a cement stump in the center that was nearly too small to sit on. A lone light bulb located above the door broke the darkness and allowed the guards to observe the guest through the peephole. At bedtime, the door would swing open and a guard would unlock a large wooden plank that swung down from the wall. Here, without mattress or blankets, one fought to wrestle sleep from the clutches of the night. For some, it was the hunger induced by scanty provisions. For others, the boredom is what consumed them. For Anatoly, it was the cold. The pervasive, inescapable chill was his worst enemy. His ordeal began on March 15, 1977, when the KGB abducted him on Gorky Street. He was snatched from his new bride, his family, his life, his home. He was thrust into a desperate struggle for physical survival and into a desperate search for real life. It was over two and a half years into his struggle. It was over two and a half years into his struggle that Anatolia unexpectedly received a ray of light and hope. On January 21st, 1980, the day after his 32nd birthday, an official who was in charge of storing prisoners' belongings inexplicably brought to him a small black book that had been confiscated from his apartment when the KGB had raided it at the time of his arrest. It had been a gift from his bride, Avital, who had immigrated to Israel just after their wedding in the anticipation that Anatoly would be permitted to follow soon. From Israel, she had sent to him this little book of Psalms. Anatoly had tried since his incarceration to obtain the book from the storeroom, but had been denied. Now, without explanation, here it was, in his hands. To that point, the book had been little more to Anatoly than a sentimental gift from his wife. When he held it, he in some respect felt he held her. It was precious to him. It connected him to Avital. The following evening, the food trap in the door of his cell flung open and a telegram was thrust through the opening. With shaking hands, Anatoly read the lines, My dearest son, yesterday on January 20th, Papa passed away. Please bear this sorrow as bravely as I did. Natasha and I are well. 
and are with you all the time. I kiss you affectionately, Mama. Anatoly was plunged into a darkness that not even this prison had been able to, to send over him. For two days he sat in benumbed shock, not wanting to move, think, or do anything. Then the thought of his psalm book came to him. Suddenly an overwhelming urge to read it swept over him. I opened it, Anatoly recollected, and immediately decided that I must read all 150 of the psalms, not sometime in the future, but starting today. The print was small. The light was bad. His eyes burned from the strain. He didn't recognize some of the Hebrew words. But by working from roots that he knew and guessing at others, he was able slowly and meticulously to begin to digest each line. As he first took hold of what would become his lifeline over the coming seven years, Anatoly admitted, I can't say that I understood the Psalms completely, but I sensed their spirit and felt both the joy and the suffering of King David, their author. He recalled as a child having seen an awe-inspiring statue of a man whose foot rested on a huge head. Later, his father explained to him the account of David and Goliath, his first lesson in things Jewish. As he began to immerse himself in the Psalms, the distant memory flooded back into his conscious thoughts. Later, he would reflect, and now in my cell, King David had come to my aid. In time, the prison guards, officials, and Interrogators took note of Anatoly's attachment to that tiny black book. Before long, it became their leverage point with him. Eventually, in the dead of the Russian winter, they confiscated his book of Psalms. His objections were met with the dry party line he had come to expect. It is the duty of the state to guard you in prison from harmful influence, so your religious literature has been confiscated with our consent. Nothing could have struck him more deeply. It had become increasingly difficult to distinguish the line of demarcation between the words of the Psalms and the life of Anatoly Sharansky. Life without the Psalms was unthinkable, impossible. It would be dot, 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 not life at all. Anatoly declared a work strike until they returned his book of Psalms. The Soviet officials responded in kind, denying Anatoly any visits from family for the next two years. When he didn't budge, they sentenced him to 15 days in the punishment cell. Over two weeks later, they asked, Are you going to work? His reply was simply, Only when you return my psalm book. He was given 15 more days in the punishment cell. The standoff continued until Anatoly had spent 75 days in the punishment cell. By now, he was nearly overcome with weakness. But when asked again if he would return to work, he replied as if he had had so many times before, only when you return my psalm book. The resolve of the prison officials wavered only slightly, five days in the punishment cell. The battle went on. Repeated demands to return to work, each met with Anatoly's refusal until the psalms were returned. By the time he neared his 100th day in the prison punishment cell, Anatoly's weakness was becoming overwhelming. Once he tried to stand, everything turned dark. His head filled with a deafening roar and then blackness. He was transferred to the prison hospital. There he regained some strength, but soon he was back in the punishment cell. Again? Will you go to work? Again? Not until you give me back my psalm book. Another 15 days. On and on, the test of wills continued. Eventually, the Soviets transferred Anatoly to another prison. Shortly after his arrival, they brought him materials for weaving bags that were used to carry vegetables and demanded, Start working! What about my psalm book? Amazingly, it was only a few days until Anatoly held his hands in his hand the small book of psalms. In all, he had spent 186 days in the punishment cell. But in the end, he deemed it worth the privilege of latching hold again of the words that had become his words, the lines that had become his life. The coming years of his nearly one decade stay in Soviet prisons unfolded day by day. 
Each day was spent with the Psalms, giving voice to his soul's deepest cries. Then on the morning of February 10th, 1986, the food trap in the door of his cell slammed open with a gruff voice ordered, To a summons! Guards undressed Anatoly. Everything he possessed was confiscated. He was given different clothing, civilian clothing. He asked for a belt, for the pants he'd been given were far too large. He was given a piece of string. Without explanations, he was led to the exit of the prison where four KGB men awaited him. Not knowing what awaited him, Anatoly demanded, I want my psalm book with me. They tried to forcibly remove him, and Anatoly began to lift screams that echoed off the stark prison walls. Soon one of the KGB officers produced the book and said, You'll receive it on the spot. Outside the prison, Anatoly was forced into a car as photographers captured every move. In an escort of three cars, he was sped through the streets of Moscow, where to this time Anatoly wondered to himself. His heart soared with anticipation as it became increasingly clear they were taking him to Bokovo Airport. As they entered the airport, the car proceeded to a waiting plane. Before the car doors could open, Anatoly saw another band of photographers jostle for position. So much confusion, so many questions. Where was he headed? Could this really be it? Was he going to be released? Would they really send him to Israel to be reunited reunited with Avital after 12 years of married life spent virtually entirely apart? Could he dare believe? As he stepped out of the car and before moving toward the plane, he demanded one more time, where's my psalm book? You received everything that was permitted, came the brusque reply. As the officers moved to take him away to the plane, Anatoly dropped to the snow in protest. I won't move until you give me back my psalm book. No one moved. The photographers were poised to capture every move, every word of this now world-renowned human rights activist. Everything Anatoly had ever wanted lay just yards in front of him. Freedom. Israel. Avital. But seeing no movement in response to his demand, Anatoly lay back in the snow and screamed, Give me back my psalm book! Within moments, the book was begrudgingly thrust into his hands. He was put upon the plane. Soon he was airborne, but still he did not know where he was headed. He could only hope, dream, pray. After two hours of flight time toward the setting sun, an official informed him that he was being deported from the Soviet Union, having been charged with espionage. His day had finally come. It was over. Anatoly dropped into his seat amazed. I knew all along that this day would have to come, he would later write. And now I took the psalm book and turned to Psalm 30, which I had long ago decided to recite at the moment of my release. A song of David at the dedication of a house, it began. Now I was reading these words en route to my own house in Jerusalem. I continued reading one triumphant psalm after another. Within days, Anatoly stood physically in Jerusalem, finally reunited with Avital, having obtained his dream, having won. Anatoly made his way through a crush of people to the western wall of the old city, Holding our psalm book in my hand, I kissed the wall and said, Baruch Martyr Asarim. Blessed is he who liberates the imprisoned. Now, I can't imagine being in a dark, dingy cell for 12 years of my life and get up, give up food and hunger strikes and demands for my psalm book. But maybe that was the thing that released him, even if he was still in prison. Come back for Psalms study and hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are glorious, you are wonderful. And you do meet all our needs. Thank you for teaching us through David to do the things that we must do and should do. And even if there is an unbelieving Jewish man who does not know Christ, the very 
Christ of whom the Psalms point. Could we not ourselves have a commitment to the Psalms like this? Thank you for the blessed Psalm book of Israel. For truly they are the songs of the redeemed. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. We love you. And we thank you for ministering to us even this day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.